Approaching the microphone now is one of the most contumacious competitors I've ever seen. Garvin, I told you, if you messed with me and stuck around, you're on the hit list. I told Garvin I was going to make hash out of him. And look at him now. Your hero has got a big bald spot. Rhodes, Slater, Rich, all you people better take a lesson from what you just saw. Now, that was playtime. That was just fun. I'm out here, and I'm happy. I'm smiling. But now, gentlemen, when it comes time to get in the ring, I'm not playing and I'm not fooling anymore. I'll hurt you. And welcome back to another edition of the Wrestling Stoop with the legend himself, Bob Roop, going to join us in just a moment. And of course, I am your co-host, Ray Russell, and I hope you guys had time to digest all of that turkey and all those other goodies over the course of the last week. As we head now into the month of December 2023, the holiday season in full effect. Hope your shopping is going well. And this week on the Stoop, we begin quite a hot topic in the career of Bob as we talk about his entire run in the old NWA San Francisco territory promoted by Roy Shire. Yes, we're headed back to the beginning of 1977, going to take it all the way through the year, Bob there for about the full year, both as an in-ring competitor as well as the booker for the San Francisco territory, and we're going to dissect that entire run in the ring and behind the scenes, everything that was going on, how Bob came about arriving in the San Francisco territory, his initial thoughts on how things were ran, how he replaced Pat Patterson as Booker. We're going to look at some of the major angles and feuds that went down over the course of 1977. And yes, guys, it's coming. There's a lot of false narratives out there, and Bob's going to set the record straight, going to tell you all the truths about what was going on behind the scenes when Bob Roop tried to, quote-unquote, steal the San Francisco territory away from Roy Shire. Lots to talk about there, lots to unpack. And we're going to get to it in just a moment. But first, just a friendly reminder that you can listen to The Wrestling Stoop, as well as sister shows like The Wrestling Memory Grenade, now in the 1988 in the WWF Project. Just finished up Saturday night's main event for January 2nd, heading into the first ever Royal Rumble. And let's not forget WrestleMania 4 right around the corner. You can also listen to the Regional Wrestling Podcast, where we talk the territories. It's me and co-host Jamie Ward doing Georgia 81. Me and Roman Gomez covering Bill Watts' UWF in 1986 and coming soon. Special guests like Steve Crawford, Gene Jackson, going to join the show as we begin to break down Memphis wrestling in 1985. Going to be a fun time when we get there very soon. All of that is part of the Regional Wrestling Podcast. You can listen to those shows and a whole lot more over at the WrestleCopia Podcast Network, located over at WrestleCopia.com. That's WrestleCopia.com and anywhere your podcast streaming needs are met, from Apple to Spotify, Google, and beyond. And you guys can also follow Bob, Bob Roop, over on his social media, over on Facebook. And you can find him there at Facebook.com slash PoorBobRoop. And don't be a stranger, guys. Friend Bob. He'll be happy to hear from you. 
And you guys can follow me, Ray Russell, on social media as well for all the latest goings on here at the WrestleCopia Podcast Network. And I'm also constantly adding old school video clips and pictures from throughout wrestling history. And my social media, well, you can follow me on X, formerly the Twitter. You can follow me there at Wrestling Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I in Grenade. Also, follow and like me, Facebook.com slash Wrestling Grenade. And hey, guys, while you're at it, be a subscriber to my YouTube channel over at YouTube.com slash Wrestling Grenade. And of course, saving up for some new hardware here as the podcast number continues to grow. So now would be a fantabulous time to become a WrestleCopia patron. Yes, indeed, guys, talking about that $5 all-access tier. And you can find me there at Patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. That address again, Patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. You get all sorts of gifts for just 5 bucks, including all of my insanely detailed book-like show notes, talking pages and pages of show notes for every episode of The Grenade Show, Monday Warfare, covering the Raw vs. Nitro War, and of course, the Regional Wrestling Podcast. You'll also get early access to many of the podcasts here on WrestleCopia, where you can listen days and sometimes as much as a week earlier than the rest of the listeners. Plus, remastered versions of the earliest episodes of The Grenade Show, covering the 1989 NWA project, includes enhanced sound quality, plus new content and conversation never heard before. But that's still not all. You also get digital downloads for your viewing and reading pleasure, random bonus video drops, and of course, the Patreon-exclusive watch-along series, covering many past WWF and WCW events. And remember, all of these gifts in their own subfolders now, thanks to Patreon. You can find everything with ease. And you get all of that for the low, low price of just $5. No subscription, cancel any time. Show your support. Give it a try for a month. I think you'll like the content that I offer. And every penny of it goes right back here to the WrestleCopia Podcast Network. So please, if you have a few bucks to spare, looking to support that next up-and-coming podcast brand, please consider making it WrestleCopia. As I try to bring you guys the most quality product, providing information as well as entertainment. So help me out if you can, guys. Let's keep all of these amazing podcasts up and running for the months and the years to come. And now all of that said, all of that out of the way, time to bring him back onto the show, the man you've been waiting for. You guys know who I'm talking about. Here he is, Mr. Bob Root. Bob, welcome back to the show again. Hope you enjoyed your time off of work. Well, thanks, Ray. How about uh, you too? I hope you had a, a nice break with your family. Yeah, it was it was good. Uh, you know, the, the bus driver said to me this morning when my five-year-old was getting on the bus, I bet you're happy they're, they're going back to school. And I said, <laughs> really, it makes no difference to me. I'm happy when they're home. And, you know, I can't lie. I'm happy when they, when they leave for a few hours as well, a little bit of peace to get some things done. But no. I appreciate that, and uh, I know you mentioned that you uh, you got some plans to have some a really good dinner. <laughs> it sounds like upcoming later this week with your sons, so uh, I'm sure you're looking forward to that. Yeah, we couldn't uh, last week. Uh, we couldn't. We weren't all available at the same time. Uh, don't get me wrong. We're we're not real big on holidays. A lot of times, holidays, Thanksgiving and Christmas, are when families who have been separated get together. They get back together and celebrate and you know say hi again and maybe they haven't seen each other for you know since last christmas or thanksgiving and sure and maybe, maybe even longer and so but you know my boys and i we live together we own a home together so i see them every day and you know i mean it's great we don't we, we have a good life we don't take it for granted 
sometimes we don't even sit down to eat, right. but we'll stand, we'll have food in, in, on the countertops in the kitchen and we'll stand there and grab a plate and lean back against the counter and talk to each other for a half hour or so. And, and that's fine. Uh, we, we went the other way when, when their mother was still alive. Uh, we had the big uh, celebratory type stuff. And in fact, when we first moved back here to Michigan 28, nine years ago, my mother would come uh, during the holidays and we'd have my two brothers and sisters and their families together, especially for Christmas. So there would be like maybe 20, 25 people in the house. And <laughs> that's fine. You know, that's fine. But, you know, things uh, evolve over time, though. I get you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll get together this Thursday. And, uh, you know, we haven't figured out just we haven't decided yet exactly what we're going to have. But Boy, that Mongolian something. barbecue sounded good. I'll tell you that. You yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that. But uh, cool. you you talk about getting your kid on the bus. You know, at this end of the country, uh, or I mean, at, at this end, from you, I'm I'm on the bus when people put their kids on there. Yeah, and, yeah. and it's nice. You know, uh, we have a special education bus that have kids with, with special needs and we have a really, uh, I have a great driver that is very kind and sweet, and um, uh, she has turned kids that were problematic with behavior at the beginning. We have children that are oppositional and defiant. They have a condition where it's hard for them to go along with anything, and they might tell you no to just about everything you ask them to do. They, first of all, they might balk at even getting on the bus. So, you know, where the parent has to almost, you know, carry them on. So uh, we've had all, and, you know, in a couple of months since school started, we've gotten that turned around on our bus where the kids seem to be glad to get on. And we've got kids from age 13 down to uh, one little girl, age three, who's just the sweetest little girl. So uh, when you mentioned putting your kids on the bus, that, <laughs> that reminded me of another way that you and I have things in common. No, and we have even more in common. I really respect the bus aides because my five-year-old that I was just referencing, he uh, is autistic. So he also has an aide on his bus who helps him and, and, and buckles him in and all, all of that. So I certainly appreciate the bus drivers who have been so kind and, and the bus aides as well. So appreciate people like you, Bob. Well, thanks. My, my little boy uh, at the time was three when he first got on the bus and I, I know how I felt about his driver. He had the same driver for about 10 years, all the way up uh, from age three until he started going to middle school. And my older boy also got on that bus. He didn't He didn't have special needs, but uh, the bus driver was so kind and nice that she became like, a, like almost a, a, a member of the family. We honored her birthday and that sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, it's nice. It's nice to... To be, be able to give parents a certain amount of relief by them knowing that their kid, their child is in good hands with you. They don't have to worry about them being abused or their, their safety or anything like that, that we're going to take care of them. We're going to protect them, make sure they're okay. Yeah, it's a good feeling. It's, uh, I'm retired as a special education teacher, and this is a way I can kind of keep my hand in. Uh, I don't have the energy to take a full-time job in the classroom because that takes not just five days a week of actual school. It takes a weekend working to get ready for uh, what's coming up the next week. And right. I, I, did, I, did it, I did it for a while. And it's, it's a great job, don't get me wrong, but it is very, very uh, time-consuming, and I just don't have the energy for it anymore. 
Uh, I mean, I've got plenty, but not, not, I, I, don't want, I don't think I would do the job justice. I'm in a place where I can be effective and helpful, and it's great for me, and I'm hoping it's good for the kids, too. Yeah, no, I, I totally respect that, man, and uh, just really appreciate you guys um, doing what you do. But um, I'm sure everybody's tuned in. Uh, as I explained at the top of the show, this week we begin our voyage, Bob, back to 1977. We're going to dissect your entire run in the San Francisco Territory, your arrival, your time in the ring, you becoming the booker, and the lengthy feud that you had with Kevin Sullivan, which, if I do say so, was a master class in storytelling. It lasted something like six months. And in order to get to some of the other stories that we have planned upcoming very soon, it was important to attack this part of your career first, because this indirectly plays a part in the other stories we have on deck. Uh, hint, hint, guys. Yeah, we're going to be talking about Knoxville in the not-so-distant future. But for right now, we're going to cover, hopefully, the San Francisco territory over the next two or three episodes. And then the week of Christmas, guys, I believe it's somewhere around December 20th the show's going to drop that week. It's going to be Ask Bob Anything. That's right. So begin to send in your questions right now. Any questions you may have that pertain to anything except for the Knoxville story, the Knoxville 5, the Plan B video, because we're going to break that all down in the early part of 2024. So any other questions you guys have on deck, send them my way, wrestlecopia at gmail.com. That's wrestlecopia at gmail.com. Or send them to me via DM, guys. You can DM me over on Twitter at wrestlinggrenade or facebook.com slash wrestlinggrenade, and we'll try to get in as many questions as we can the week of Christmas. So looking forward to that, Bob. Yeah, it sounds good. I, You know, there's nothing an overtired wrestler likes better than telling stories. And uh, if, if uh, someone comes up with a question that, you know, maybe brings forth new memories, that's great, too. I mean, uh, the road was an ordeal. Uh, the ability to talk about it now, uh, those 15 years of being, you know, I mean, just on the road in your car all the time. Now to be able to talk about it, we're talking basically about the positive things we remember. And, you know, it's not doesn't do any good to bring everybody down by talking about what a drag it could be and all that. But uh, that's life. I mean, uh, life is, can be tiresome at times. Sure. When, uh, yeah, when things get, you know, when you get tired and stressed. Yeah, being able to, these stories uh, are a result of, of all the sacrifices that were made, not just by me, but by my loved ones during those 15 years. Uh, these stories are the reward, if you want to call it that. I mean, some of my buddies would say, well, that's a reward. Please don't give me any more rewards. Punish me. Yeah, so I'm glad we can do this. Very cool. Yeah, so guys, in three weeks' time, mark it down on your calendars. Ask Bob anything coming the week of Christmas. A nice gift uh, in the holiday spirit. I asked Bob off air if he thought that would be a good idea. He thought it would be a great idea. Looking forward to hearing from each and every one of you and trying to answer as many questions as we can heading into the new year. But for right now, we go back in time, San Francisco. And this is where some negative narratives begin for poor Bob Roop. And a lot of it feels like because people don't, they don't feel like researching information that's been put out there by various sources at this point, Bob. You know, it's, it's a lot easier for someone to let others form an opinion for them rather than go fact check it for themselves, especially in this day and age, which is kind of weird because it's easier than ever to fact check. But it is what it is. But some people, they see a post on a random message board written by another fan, and they just take it as gospel. 
and then it gets passed along as complete truth. So we will be setting the record straight, guys, by the time we finish up this journey over to the Pacific Coast. And what I'm referring to is, yes, we're going to look at everything that goes on here in 1977, but you'll also be able to finally tell the whole story behind Bob Roop and others contemplating running against the local NWA promoter, Roy Shire, by the time we're done here. Uh, yeah, you know, back to a second on what you're saying of people uh, reacting to certain things. A lot of times we're looking for reaffirmation or reinforcement of our worldview. And maybe you, you uh, go to a website that on any particular subject, and it doesn't matter what it is, and the first nine or ten things that you read don't meet with your opinion or your values or a combination of whatever makes you what you are. And you look, well, I don't agree with that. You know, that's, that's got to all be, that's all got to be false or crap or whatever. And then on number 11 says something the way you feel. You say, oh yeah, that's the one. Now there's finally something that's true. And that's very common. And it's not, doesn't mean people are bad or saying wrong with them. It's just, uh, we like to, to feel that maybe what we're thinking and how we feel and our values are right rather than, than knowing or finding out or, or having to worry about them being wrong right. or misguided. So yeah, that's very common. I don't take it personally myself. People can have the right to their own opinion that's based on the corollary that as long as they recognize that I have that same right to my opinion, they want to say, well, your opinion doesn't count because I don't agree with it. So no, that doesn't work. If, you, if we go with that, then you can say, well, I don't agree with anybody's opinion. It isn't exactly like my own. And you'll never learn. You don't learn if you don't, um, if you don't look at the opposing side of things. Because someone might be coming from the absolute truism of what's going on with them, and they're trying to share it. But it's not what you want to hear, because it doesn't match your particular beliefs. So you say, well, no, that can't be true, or that they're weird, or they're, they're a geek, or something. So um, I'm not going to believe that. Where if you looked at it, and said, well, maybe like you mentioned earlier, maybe I will look that up. You know, I'm sure there's books about that. Or heck, now you don't have to go to the library. You just turn your computer on. Or, you know, just Google and you got your, you got all the books you want right there. You don't even have to get out of your chair. Yeah, I, I always wanted my opinion to be informed, not, not just something I thought that sounded good or whatever, but informed based on facts, based on everything that there is that I can find to know about it that I can, so I can say, I believe this to be true and based on these facts. If somebody comes along and says, well, how about this? And they offer up a new bit of information I wasn't aware of. That is true. And that does change things. You know what? I'm glad for that. Because why? You want to know why? Because my opinion wasn't informed, not completely informed. Right. So they're doing me a favor that way. I might not like it. Maybe maybe it came up in a public venue of some kind where you've got an audience of, of thousands. You might not like it, but by the same token... In the long run, you should be grateful for that kind of thing because you want to be as informed as you can be if you're going to be running your opinion out there. You talked about uh, informed information. Uh, that's certainly what we're going to try to put out here over the next couple episodes of the show, maybe maybe three episodes. Who knows how long this is going to roll? But uh, you were talking about books. And before we get rolling, I have to give major credit and props for a lot of this research to Rock Rims, who has put out at least five amazing books on the history of wrestling in California both in San Francisco and Los Angeles, a great autobiography he put out on Ron Starr as well before Ron's passing, and the story we're about to tell. It lies within Rock Rim's book titled The Professor, 
the wrestling genius of Roy Shire. And that's a free plug, guys. Rock did not ask me to do that. I don't mind plugging things that are of quality, and Rock Rim's books, certainly of quality. I recommend you find Rock on Facebook or Twitter. Inquire about all five, because right now he has a great deal going on. Digital format books, all five, something like 20 bucks for all of them. Tell him Ray Russell from WrestleCopia sent you. And no, guys, he did not give me these books for free to say this. I paid the same $20.50 that you will, and it was well worth it, I gotta tell you. Uh, anywho, we're gonna get going. Some of the names you're going to hear pop up during the early part of this discussion in regards to direct quotes from the books and, and other information uh, include Bob, quotes from you yourself, also Alan Bolte, who was a ring announcer for many years in the San Francisco territory. He also filled in sometimes for TV, Hank Renner, if he was a no-show for whatever reason. We'll also hear from Alexis Smirnoff, a fellow wrestler, Kevin Sullivan, you guys all know that name, Bob Cardigo, a photographer who eventually worked for Roy Shire to some degree, and longtime friend of Pat Patterson is Bob as well. So, uh, in order to get to how this run ends, Bob, which is what everybody wants to hear about, uh, we have to understand how it all began. So, this is my understanding. Stop me if you will. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, this is the beginning of the entire ordeal. Setting the stage for your story here, uh, you went to San Francisco somewhere. I don't know if you remember exactly when, but I got in my notes here somewhere around late February, early March of 77 after another run in Florida had finished up recently. What was the story behind it? No big thing? Did you call Roy Shire? Did he call you? Was it an Eddie Graham deal? How did it How did it all play out? Uh, I called Shire. I worked uh, in San Francisco one time when I was going through on my way to Japan, but I'd never worked on the coast, on the West Coast. And my main uh, motive for wrestling was to travel. So by that time, I'd been to a number of foreign countries and Puerto Rico and the Bahamas and Canada and uh, Mexico. And so I thought I would uh, try to, you know, see what the West Coast was like. I know I like the weather. So that's the main reason I went out there. And as we've already mentioned, the NWA promoter for San Francisco was Roy Shire and his booker at the time, the legendary Pat Patterson guys. Now, uh, both announcer Alan Bolte and wrestler Alexis Smirnoff, they made similar claims I took this part straight from Rock Rim's book on Roy Shire, uh, something along the lines of Roy Shire was not receptive to either constructive criticism or unsolicited advice. Roy may have trusted Pat as Booker, but when it came right down to it, Roy had a definite vision of how he wanted things done, and it was his way and only his way. True or false? True. Yeah, he was and that that and uh, he booked the same way for 20 some years. Uh, he didn't change. He kept doing the same thing. His stuff had worked for you over over because even though he was doing the same thing, he usually would have different talent to do it with. So it looked different, but it was the same. I'm talking about specifically the same angles, the same finishes to the matches and and that sort of thing that, you know, after a while it becomes so obvious that uh, the fans catch on and they kind of, a light bulb goes on. It kind you of, kind of, you kind of smarten them up without smarten them up, I guess. Yeah. And that was, uh, you know, we'll get to that in a, in a minute, but that was something that b really bothered me from the start was going out to the match, um, the cow palace for the first time I worked there and having people tell me they knew what I was going to be doing in my match. <laughs> and, uh, and what, and they told me, you're going to do this. Then you're going to do that. So two out of three fall match. You're going, then you're going to do this on the second fall. And then 
you'll do this in a third ball. So wait, now, the this, fans are coming to you and, and asking you, are telling you how the, how the match is going to play out? They're walking, yeah, as I'm walking down the aisle, I've got people who are telling me, oh yeah, your first ball, you guys are going to get cheated, and the second ball is going to be a DQ, and then the third ball, you guys are going to win. And it was true. <laughs> and that, I had just come from Florida where uh, the protecting the business was, I mean, they did everything in the world. Uh, we talked about luring all those poor guys down to the uh, sportatorium and stretching them and busting them open and, and you know, uh, having them go blind and all these kind of things to have them go back out in the community and show, hey, I don't know about what you guys think about pro wrestling, but I was in there working out. I'm telling you, it's real. And by going to all that effort in Florida, and the show is just put kind of a you know predominant uh, motive uh, they had down there as far as what you call protecting the business, to go out to California to where the people are telling you what you're going to do. <laughs> and there's another thing. If people know what you're doing, our business is ridiculous. You go out there and you're, I mean, you're falling all over the place. You're taking crazy bumps and all that. And they know you're just acting and working. Uh, you're, you're a clown, really. I mean, I don't care how talented you are. If they know it's just a show, uh, we haven't gotten there yet, but, uh, or we didn't mention it yet, but I'll give you an example. In 1972, five years earlier, I, I wrestled in Germany for a month in my first night there. Ever wrestling in Germany, I was in the first match. I did what I thought was uh, my most uh, spectacular stuff. I gave the guy, my opponent, a shoulder breaker and then ran up on the top rope and jumped off the turnbuckle and dropped an elbow on his neck. And the people laughed their butt off. They laughed. They just howled. How you talk about, you know, what's wrong with this picture? Different I styles, knew, huh? Well, they knew it was, they knew it wasn't real. Okay. They knew it couldn't be. German people are pretty well educated. They knew sure. it couldn't be. <laughs> and that a guy would go to this effort to, to try to convince them. They thought it was funny. Well, the way I dealt with the way I dealt with that was that I didn't do what they expected. I would do things that I just like grab a hold and not do anything. And nobody else was doing that. It wasn't part of that. Wasn't You weren't supposed to do it. In fact, that promoter gave me a hard time about it. But they started kind of believing uh, that maybe maybe it was because I was I was young uh, in the business. And I looked at that maybe I was just incompetent or whatever. But I wasn't with the program after that first night of, uh, you know, the big move. So anyway, I had a way of dealing with it. But. Getting back to California, where were we? Uh, you were just talking about the difference from Florida protecting the business to the yeah. point where the fans are, yeah. are telling you you're finished before you get to the ring. So that's yeah. got, that's got to blow your mind. You'd never, I mean, you've been in the business eight years and you'd never heard tell of anything like that before. Uh, up until that point, I'm imagining. Well, it was it was humiliating in a way. I mean, the people that are there, a lot of them, I swear, it just sounds weird, but. A lot of them there, we felt like were people, the only reason they were there is they were trying to get get a, a antagonize a wrestler into smacking them so they could sue them. <laughs> they could get a lawsuit. And uh, it was humiliating, really. I mean, I, after about a couple of weeks of it, I was ready to leave, and that, that ended up leading to me getting becoming the booker. I wanted to get, get to the end of Pat Patterson here as booker, and we'll get into all of that, how you became the booker, because... I'm very interested to hear that because I don't I don't have the the notes I don't have the information as to how it actually went down you taking over the book but it's reported that Pat and Roy would have arguments fairly common 
uh, different visions on how to run things. Patterson began to feel underappreciated, underpaid for his job. I think you related with that as well, moving on throughout the months here. Uh, the entire story, though, of the beginning of the end of the working relationship between Shire and Patterson, this is an interesting one, and you have some insight. I know you got a lot of a lot of the feedback there from some of the boys and things when you got there. But this, th- there was an incident that took place back in the latter half of 1976 with Shire and Patterson. Uh, they were riding together in a car. I guess they were getting onto the highway and Shire runs into a motorcycle, I do believe. Now you can believe, take it for whichever way you want, but th- they were running together. It wasn't the Hells Angels as stated in Rock Rim's book. Um, you said it was, it was a different biker gang group, whatever you want to call it. But, they were running pretty deep, and you made a good point. You said if it was the Hell's Angels, Shire would have been dead. So <laughs> touche, I say to that. Um, but my question here is, I guess he winds up pulling over. Shire does. I don't know if they forced him to or he did it on his own, but it's reported that he got out of his car. He went to his trunk to get his thirty-eight pistol, but he got caught by a few of the bikers, and they begin attacking him, beating him down, whipping uh, full beer cans at him. Oh, that can't be feel too good with Patterson and then Shire's younger son still in the car until police arrived. Uh, you had heard this story. Is it, did it play out the way I'm telling it to you or did you hear a different version? No, I heard that same thing. Uh, and it was typical of Shire that he, um, yeah, it was foggy and he came off an exit or an entrance road and to uh, the main road. And he, he ran in the side of a motorcycle, knocked it over and seriously injured it. And it wasn't, it wasn't Hell's Angels. They might have killed him right there if it was Hell's Angels. And certainly if they caught him, they wouldn't have been throwing beer cans at him. They would have been throwing knives and guns and uh, brass knuckles and everything else. And they'd have been throwing them from real close range, like attached to their fists. So, uh, no, he, uh, he, he ran into the guy and didn't stop. And they had to, they had to trace it and run him down. And then he denied it and said it, uh, it wasn't his fault. Uh, and what happened is when the guy sued, and this took a while, took, I don't know, months or maybe even a year, he wanted Pat Patterson to lie for him in court. He wanted Pat to say that it hadn't been Roy's fault, that Roy didn't run into the guy, that the guy ran into him. And Pat didn't want to lie, you know, on the on the stand. Right. And, you know, perjure himself. And I, I sure as heck don't blame him. With Pat's personal orientation, he, the last person wanted to go to prison. For any reason. So uh, well, Pat, Pat was, was saying, also from Canada, Montreal, so he could have been deported as well. Right, right. Well, yeah, Pat had a beautiful home there outside, I think, in Mateo. Uh, I was in his place a couple of times, and uh, he, wasn't, he wasn't there. He wouldn't, I, if he had been there, I'd have never, he'd have never let me be in his house. But uh, Terry Garvin had me over a couple of times when he was staying there. Yeah, so Pat did, did not want to perjure himself. Roy kept trying to force him, and I think he took the book away from him, or I think that my becoming a booker uh, was a way to put pressure on Pat, that I took the job he had. Now, uh, I don't know if you're ready yet to go into detail. Uh, Roy's idea of of being the booker. No, I was just going over my notes. I want to make sure that I'm not skipping anything. We're not jumping over anything here that uh, we didn't talk about in regards to this incident. I, I'm reading the same things you're telling me here. Uh, Alan Bolte saying the same thing in regards to Pat Patterson not wanting to purge himself. Uh, Bob Cardigo uh, said that there were just a lot of arguments between Roy and Pat going on at the time as well. Uh, Cardigo also says that Roy liked to also use the term queers or effing queers in Pat's presence. 
I'm sure right. uh, Patterson didn't care for that. And so um, they say, while Pat never mentioned any of it, at least not in the public, there was also the rumor, again, you just touched on it, uh, somewhere around February of 77 would have been when Roy asked Pat to lie for him in court. Now, Pat never came out and told anyone this, at least not, again, in public. Clearly, he confided in a few people who it's released here in this book. Uh, Roy made claim that the bikers also stole his 38 gun from him and the U.S. title belt, which I'm assuming was never really stolen, probably kept being used on TV. But he, he claimed it was worth $2,000 and, he, you know, he wanted his belt back. So these were other little things that I guess Roy was wanting Pat to lie about while on the stand, which is just sure. uh, crazy uh, just to get a few extra bucks out of this. Not only am I counter sue and not only am I going to deny the allegations that I, I struck your car, but now I'm going to I'm going to get you for robbery, whether you did it or not. So Roy Shire, it sounds like an interesting individual, but again, he's a promoter. Uh, no, he's, he's worse than that. <laughs> uh, just a couple more lines here, Bob, and we're going to get into your, your good stuff here, how you became the booker here in San Francisco. I just wanted to take a couple of more excerpts from this book. Bob Cardigo, again, who for years maintained a regular contact with Pat Patterson. He says, from what I understood, Roy wanted Pat to lie about something regarding the incident. I think Pat's refusal to lie was the main conflict between he and Roy at that point that drove them apart. There may have even been uh, other factors, but nothing was bigger uh, than, I guess, asking him to perjure himself. So uh, it even states here, and you can tell me you know, if, you, if this is a direct quote from you. It says, Bob Roop, who would replace Patterson as Booker, claims that Roy gave him the book, gave you the book, out of spite to Pat Patterson, uh, who refused to perjure himself. So is that how it just went down? Roy just gave you the book? Uh, it, it, do you really feel that in some way you, you got that book just despite Pat Patterson? That's what Shire was trying to do. Well, he gave it to me about 10 seconds before I opened my mouth to give my notice and leave. Oh, because, uh, yeah, <laughs> let's go back. I want a little segue Please uh, do. that Roy wanted Pat to lie, because if Roy got found guilty, and the, the, the biker was seriously injured. He was permanently uh, affected by it. He oh, one okay. leg. Leg wouldn't work, something like that. Oh, I mean, he was in serious shape. It wasn't like he just had a couple of scrapes from his bike going down. Okay. He was crippled. So if Roy lost a lawsuit, he was going to have to pay, I don't know, maybe a million bucks. Now, one day at TV, after TV, I, uh, Roy was talking to his ring man, and I happened to walk up. I needed something. I hated to even talk to Roy at all for any reason, but I had to something I had to check with him or give tell him about. And I walked in, up, and he was talking about, uh, he asked the ring guy, he said, that new board you bought, you know, how did, how did is it okay? That new, that new, he's talking about the ring board, the big plywood four by eights. He said, that new ring board, is it, how is it? And he said, well, Roy, you told me to get the cheapest one, which, and all the cheapest ones are green. He said, and it, uh, you know, uh, it broke. And Shire, I thought it, I thought it was a rib. He puffed up, his face turned blood red. It looked like he had a, a black garter snake crawling in through the veins under his forehead. <laughs> and he hit, he hit the ring and he said, God, what? I paid $14 for that fucking board. Wow. I, went, wow. I, looked, I looked at him and I, yeah, 14 bucks. <laughs> now, the last time, last Cow Palace show, he might have walked out of there with as much as $20,000, 30, 40000 or $50,000 in cash in his briefcase. I couldn't believe, I thought it was a rib. You know, I thought, well, you know, he's got to be pretending, you know, going, this guy is, is rumored to be the, uh, you know, the, the most cash 
wealthy uh, person in Cal- Northern California, and here he's he's griping over our $13, $14 board. So extrapolate now back to ha- him having to write a check for a million bucks. Uh, I don't know if his insurance, maybe it might have been as simple, maybe he had insurance that would cover it, but his rate was going to go up. And that would be enough for him to lie, to have pot, to force Pat to lie. Shire was was actually sick. He was mentally, uh, he was so tight. He just he, he gave up everything in his life uh, for the buck, and including his family, his wife, his son, his children. He never had any friends that I know of, and and uh, you know it was uh, the Almighty Dollar was his was his uh, his deity. So yeah, he didn't want to lose the lawsuit. He was going to put all the pressure. He was going to put all the pressure on Pat Patterson that he could, and you know. Think about it. I'm not. You're telling me that he used the word queer sure. uh, is a revelation to me. I didn't know that Pat would take that. And well, I don't know that uh, Pat took it. I mean, I'm, I don't know that you know what transpired when when that came about. But uh, you know, I've I've heard that. You know, I, excuse me, I haven't heard, but I, I've read it, it, from reliable sources that were there at the time. Not not necessarily wrestlers, but other people that worked in the office and things that this would happen during Pat's time there, at, at least. Near the end, I don't know that it was going on the entire time, but it was going on near the end of Pat's uh, time here in this in this run. Well, Roy would say anything to anybody, and that's that's one of the reasons he was so despicable. The first time I I as evidence of that was the first show was on. I was walking by, uh, just had to be walking by. He was talking to Lonnie Maine, Moon Dog Lonnie Maine, and he called him "you dumb sob," and he said it, you know, son of a, mm-hmm. and and. Uh, he said, that was the stupidest move I ever effing seen. What the fuck is the matter with you? And I thought, oh, I, you know, here Lonnie's about a head taller than him. And he's looking up at Lonnie. Lonnie's looking down at him. Now, I didn't know Lonnie, man. I'd never met, even met him. But I thought, well, I got to look. I, Lonnie's got to, I'm going to look at Lonnie. He's got to be laughing. This has got to be a rib. I mean, no promoter. I don't care who it is. No promoter could possibly talk to a wrestler like that. Well, maybe Bill now, Watts. Look, now, watch that. Bill, Bill wasn't stupid like that. He wouldn't do that. He'd just fire you. <laughs> Bill would say, you're fired. But uh, I don't know. He might. He never. T- See, the thing is, nobody talked to me that way. I got gotcha. you. Uh, so maybe they did to other people. But, you know, if, they, if the people took it, that was up to them. That was their choice. Well, what it was about, Roy would, would actually try to choreograph the matches. He would tell them a high spot he wanted them to do. He wanted them to throw a man, leapfrog, uh, backdrop, or something like that, and two or three moves, and apparently Lonnie screwed up one of the ones that he asked him to do, and so he was chewing him out. Which, you know, I mean, I watched thousands of matches over the years, and some of the stuff I sent out there, including the, the important part, the finishes, the, the, the last scene in the match, right. uh, would got, got messed up. But you know you don't go and and, and you know you're gonna <laughs> you're gonna be dealing with the same wrestler the next night. You don't go up there and uh, scream at him and you know embarrass him and all that if you want to get any cooperation in the future. Now if they keep doing it, then you well there's two things. If they keep doing it, you're making actually making it too hard. If they're not getting it done, you're making it too hard. You make it simpler. Kind of like a and quarterback. Then, yeah, and then if, if it gets to the point, no matter how simple you make it, they still <laughs> keep screwing it up, then you got to let them go. Yeah, I mean, people have different degrees of uh, of uh, ability, and as far as memory, God, some guys went in the ring so stoned out of their mind, it's amazing they can remember what their name was, you know, how to find the ring. <laughs> Who's uh, going over less, again? <laughs> yeah, much less, much less uh, an evolved finish that has four or five moves to it. 
false finish, as we call them. But right. uh, yeah. yeah, so Pat did not like me because Roy was using him or using me as as pressure. And I, I do think that that's maybe why he gave me the book. Pat was still there. Uh, I think Roy felt maybe with Pat having a home there that maybe there was no way he wanted to leave. Uh, you know, and the, the gay community of the world is in San Francisco, you know, and that maybe Pat wouldn't want to leave out there, you know, or a place where he, you know, felt comfortable and uh, accepted and, you know, had a beautiful home uh, that he'd earned that he wanted to stay in. Roy might have thought that, uh, you know, he had him trapped or, you know, he had a, he had him uh, uh, fait accompli, that there was no way that Pat would leave. Right. But Pat, I don't know if this is in the book. My understanding is what Pat did was he was, he left and he was going to go. He had some money. He had saved his money. And I don't know what exactly how much he had. He never talked to me about that. About, he never talked to me about anything for that matter. But he went to New York with the idea of making a lot of money. And he was going to come back and buy Roy out. So he does. He doesn't. I don't think Pat goes to New York until '79. Actually, after his run here, he goes to Florida. He goes to work for Eddie okay. Graham after this. But you're right. You're absolutely right. Okay. I guess before he left, him and his partner Louis Dundero. I don't know if you remember him. Uh, they were. I know Louis. Louis yeah. forever. They were together forever. But I guess Louis even like had a license to promote some of the uh, smaller towns there at some point uh, in the Roy Shire territory before Pat left. But I guess they had offered to either buy Roy out before they left, or uh, they also offered to join in as partners with Roy, and Shire turned all of that down. And so Pat leaves, and he goes to Florida, from my understanding. And he even calls, while he's down there, trying to purchase the territory again. Uh, and we'll get to that, too, when you go to you know try to pull off the coup later in the year, because uh, you know I got some notes in regards to Patterson still wanting a piece of the territory at that point, or, or trying to take it over, purchase it, from Roy Shire, but yeah, that's you're you're correct in regards to where he went. I believe it was Florida instead of New York, but yeah, the, the all points say that that was uh, Pat's idea was he wanted to buy out the San Francisco territory from Roy Shire, and unfortunately, Roy just wouldn't sell. No, Roy wasn't gonna. Uh, you you got to understand, Cal Palace and Fresno, all the places for uh, maybe every town. I don't know, but all those towns that Roy could go and take his briefcase with him. Every time he walked out, he had anywhere from, I don't know, I might have been as little as a thousand bucks, but probably more than that. And in the Cow Palace, anywhere from 20 to 50,000 bucks. Every show, he would walk out with that in his, in his briefcase. It was money stolen from the box office. And years later, I just happened to be coming back from somewhere overseas. And I read in Sports Illustrated that the commissioner, the athletic commissioner, the state of California has an athletic commission, and uh, the athletic commissioner that was handling the Cow Palace shows all those years had just been arrested for uh, a, a graft uh, for taking money for over a number of years, and that was Roy's accomplice. Athletic commission got 10% of every house. For a $100,000 house, the state would expect 10 grand. Right. Well, Roy, Roy would work out a deal where they say the house was 50 grand. He would give the commissioner as little as whatever, what as little as he could give him, whatever it took, and then he would take the difference and put it in his briefcase and, and walk out with it. And then and he about a fourteen dollar board. My God. Yeah, yeah. And and so the idea that he would sell it, no, no, he would have to stop <laughs> doing that if they yeah, had to build a, a hell of a racket going on. It sounds like. Well, 
he wasn't going to let anybody in a box office with him. I mean, you're right. crazy. So, you know, he had, well, hey, man, a license. He he actually didn't even have a license. He just was able to steal. And he wasn't going to give that away to anybody. Now, we haven't gotten there yet. And I don't know if you're aware of the fact that Pat had a chance to go in with me and take yes. take your territory. Yeah. That's, okay. Uh, that's part of that okay. part of this. Oh yeah, I got it. Okay. But uh, I appreciate okay. you bringing that up because that's a huge deal in, in my eyes anyway. So that, well, we that, don't need to. That's a that's a step forward. We don't need to go there yet. Right. We will get there, guys. I do promise. Uh, you guys are wondering what uh, Bob's talking about. We will get there. Uh, it plays out later on in the year. But uh, I had a question for you. You talk about Roy wanting this done, Roy wanting that done. He's the promoter, but Pat Patterson was the booker. You were the booker. So how much, let's just say 50-50, 60-40, how much input was Roy Shire trying to force upon you guys as the booker? Because it sounds to me like he was wanting to be the booker, but he didn't want to have to deal with the, the intricacies. He asked me the night in Fresno, uh, that evening, Alex, Alexei Smirnoff and I were, were buddies out there. We'd, I just met him, but we got along real well. He's a good guy. And we were driving to uh, Fresno from San Francisco, or Fremont, actually. We live in Fremont. Uh, I was going to give my notice because I was just fed up with, I mean, territory was great. I mean, you had a day off. You had beautiful weather, you know, a lot of uh, eye candy out there. Very, really nice thing. But but I couldn't stand the idea that the business was terrible. I was still making some money. I was probably making seven, eight hundred bucks a week, which and I, money wasn't my main motive. But I didn't like the idea that of being laughed at uh, going out there in the ring and wrestling, you know, and working. So I was getting ready to give my notice. And I don't know if I was uh, beefing up my courage or whatever, but I bought a fifth of rum uh, before we took off. And I drank. I had a couple. I mean, I wasn't. Uh, you couldn't tell. I don't think. Um, I had a couple drinks before we got down there because I was I figured I was going to be off after that night because I figured Roy would just if I gave my notice, he, he wouldn't ask for a two week workout, you know, to work the two weeks. He just fire me. Anyway, uh, when I walked, I finally got him alone. When I walked in to uh, give my notice, about the time I raised my finger and and opened my started open my mouth to say, "Look, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you my notice." He he didn't no preliminary, no uh, hey, I got an idea for you. What about this? Just he said, "You want to you want you want to be the Booker?" That's what he said. You want to be the Booker? <laughs> and I thought that's all I it thought took. Of, I thought about it and I thought, you know, yeah. Uh, this this territory's got a lot of promise. All you had to do was do things differently. You had a brand new territory. Think about it. All you had to do was do it differently. All you had to do was change the, the, the setup of the way the guys worked a little bit and definitely change the, uh, uh, I changed some of the talent. I got rid of, no, I didn't get rid of some guys. A couple of guys quit. One guy quit, quit, quit by threatening me uh, with a, you know, a booking changed and do you remember who that was or do you not want to mention his name no i don't mind i i don't hold it against him he, he didn't they didn't know me i looked about 20 years old i had a baby face and uh, uh nobody ever heard of me as a booker or even maybe as a wrestler for that matter i'd only been around about seven eight years but al madrill was uh he was i booked him in the oh, uh that explains where he goes well that's one of my questions what the hell happens to al madrill but okay go on well please i continue. i I booked him in a main event, I think against Smirnoff. I don't know. I, I was trying to look up some names and dates, uh, but it doesn't matter. But it was like a double main event, or maybe it was the main event, with a fairly mediocre undercard. I didn't expect it to draw 
And, you know, it did well enough. But uh, what I, my plan was, was that to make the angle hotter between him and Seyfried Smirnov, to make the angle hotter with a couple, three weeks of TV, don't book that particular match on the next Cow Palace show. Maybe a tag team or some kind of way they get can get involved to stir up some more heat and then bring them back, uh, like uh, the show after the next one. And uh, that was my plan. And uh, Madrill waited until everybody was gone from the dressing room but me and said, and I always stayed till the last anyway. He said, uh, if you don't book me in the main event on the next show, he said, I'll be giving my notice. And he walked out the door. If he had waited, I, and, uh, plus I wasn't dressed. I was just taking a shower. I thought I was going to gone after him. If he had just waited, I said, well, I don't have to give you your notice. You just gave, you just gave me your notice because I don't take threats you know, about booking. Right. Uh, so I had to wait until, and that bothered me too. I didn't like that, you know. But, so I had to wait till Monday, I think, was uh, San Jose, I think. Anyway, and I, as soon as I walked in the dressing room, I got him alone. I said, well, um, you've got your notice. You can't tell me how to book. Uh, were, were words exchanged from a drill in return, or was he just, all right, whatever, and just kind of? No, no. No, I, a few guys I had to fire. Actually, it was a, he did me a favor in a way, because uh, if anybody was curious about whether I had any, any backbone, you know, they said, well, apparently he does. Right. You know, Al, Al was a major guy, being Not Hispanic. Not going No, I mean, you can't. <laughs> believe me, I, I work with bookers who kind of let. Uh, I worked in uh, Atlanta earlier. Harley, a good, you know, it became a dear friend before he came down and worked in Florida. Harley was a booker, and guys would go over his head all the time and go to Jim Barnett and complain about this or that, their booking, they didn't like what Harley was doing, and, and Barnett would interfere. And, you know, I, I don't know how Harley took it, you know, because he, he'd have to change his, his plans. Right. And I, when I asked him about it, when we first started working together down in Florida, this is like maybe six months, a year later, uh, he, he was sitting at one desk. Or we had desk back to back, and he looked across at this desk at me and kind of squinted at one eye and said, "Bobby, he said, I took a hundred and six thousand dollars out of there in nine months. <laughs> That's how I put up with it." <laughs> and, yeah, and that made sense to me. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. So okay, uh, you want to you want to interfere? Just keep paying me. <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> so Madrill leaves at the end of June, and we're not quite there yet. So I kind of want to go backwards a little bit with okay. your booking, if that's okay with you. My first question was: um, You take over the book almost instantaneously at the same time as Pat Patterson finishes up with the book, and I was just curious: Do you recall was Pat Patterson still on the roster? Did he still work a couple of weeks before he left, or was he gone when you took over? Yeah, he was still on the roster. I know why because coming back to me now. Wow, you were talking about a long time ago. I'm remembering this stuff. When I was came into the dressing room, he and Terry Garvin were both from Montreal or from Quebec. They were French-Canadian, and they would talk in, uh, uh, in French. And uh, they would be looking at me and kind of smirking and talking in French. And I, had, I just had a feeling that they weren't what he was saying wasn't complimentary. Let's put it that way. Okay. I, I think that, you know, he was... He was uh, you know, they didn't know me. And, he, and, and Shire, it wasn't fair. I mean, Shire pitted you against him. He made you Pat's enemy, so to speak, in many true. ways. Uh, I, mean, I, I get it, though. I, I get what you're saying on your end. Like, you didn't really do anything other than take a job. You know, what are you supposed to say? No, no, thank you. I don't want the, the pay increase, uh, a chance to turn this place around. 
you know, and all of that good stuff. So I, I get it, but I was just, I, it seemed like Pat was still there. So you come in, we'll just call it March 1st, because I don't have an exact starting date, but it's right around there. And it looks like by April, maybe the beginning of May, you're the booker. So it wasn't that long. No. Okay. No, it wasn't. Here's an important point. This booker thing, of Pat being a booker, it's a name only. Because what Roy told me, that I accepted being a booker, and before he left that night, he said, uh, uh, we'll get together at a future date, and I'll go over with you what we're going to do. And I heard that, and I said, well, he didn't want a booker. He wants a guy, you know, I used to send finishes on a tape recorder with the referee. He wants a, he wants a tape recorder. He wants me to be his walking tape recorder. So the first time I was supposed to consult with him about what we were going to do, where it was, was to go into Fresno, which was the furthest town we had. And, uh, and I know what it was, was that the, the towns that he didn't need to make, meet with me until the next time we went to Fresno because the masters had already been booked. You know, we're going to have, I wasn't going to be handling those, uh, the ones that had already been booked. I was going to start in a couple of weeks. So he said, we'll get together, meet me in some place in San Francisco, Oakland, wherever. I don't remember. Uh, he said, meet me and we'll drive out there. And he said, you drive and I'll ride with you and I'll tell you what we're going to do. Well, when it came time to go to Fresno that day, I couldn't, I, I somehow I couldn't find Roy, you know, and so I drove to Fresno and. He came in about an hour later after I got there, and he was hot. He had driven his old Bradley farm truck, had, had a hole in the floor and gas streams coming up through the floor. <laughs> he had driven that down to San Francisco from his ranch about 50 miles away uh, to meet me, knowing that I was going to be driving. And when I didn't show up, he had to drive it all the way to Fresno and back. So oh he was hot. <laughs> I bet. He said, what? Uh, you know, uh, Roy never cussed me. He never said a word. He might have said a swear word when he was talking about somebody else or about life in general or whatever, but he never cussed me. He never said you, nothing, never. Okay. He knew better. I mean, I didn't threaten him. He just knew better. You know, I, I wasn't going to take it. Are you kidding me? Oh, I'll, uh, say, I'll and, say this in regards to uh, Roy Shire, because there's a direct quote from Roy uh, in uh, this uh, book I was referring to that's uh, basically, I guess you could call it auto, an autobiography of sorts. Um, it's, it's Roy, this is what Roy said in later years. All it's quoted is in later years. I don't know when that would have been, but it would have been after all of this took place. Well, after 77, it just, uh, Roy said that I just ran out of ideas. Uh, Pat was gone explaining his reason for giving Roop the booking position. He said, Roop, he wrestled in the, on the Olympic team. Uh, he was not only a shooter, but a good worker in the ring. Uh, so even after the debacle, Roy Shire putting you over years later, and I can't speak for Roy, but it seems like he forgave you more than people who weren't even born when this happened. Bob, you know what I'm talking about. So kind of interesting. But I was curious, you know, in regards to giving you that book, he just offered it to you out of the blue. I'm assuming he knew you had some background as an assistant booker with Harley Race and Mark Lewin by this point. Uh, other than that, that's just kind of crazy that he would just come up to a random wrestler who just got to the territory and said, here, here's the book. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... I, I'm not sure when they had their promoters meeting in Las Vegas or what date you might know that he might have, uh, since I, uh, or before I came there, maybe he called Graham about me. I don't know. I don't know okay. where he got, I didn't tell him. Okay. I never had a private conversation with Roy. It lasted more than about a minute because, uh, I, I, uh, the only time I saw him usually was at television after I started booking and he would call me into his office and, uh, spit on the wall and, and tell me all kinds of things he wanted to do or what he didn't like. And 
couple times I had to uh, just, uh, you know, I said, well, I said, the show's due to start in uh, about 15 minutes. I said, uh, you're welcome to, you know, I'll take off. You can go out there and run it. And he said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, either I'm running or I'm not, one or two. If I wanted you to run it, I'd ask you. Uh, but I, you know, like Sanker, you had nothing to lose. You were ready to leave anyway, and, and the whole reason you stayed was because you had an opportunity to turn things around. And if he wasn't going to let you take that opportunity, you didn't care if he fired you or you quit or, or whatever. So I, I get where you're going there. I could have worked anywhere in the country at the time. I was in my prime. Uh, you know, I was uh, fit and healthy. I could move around the ring. I could do all kinds of different things and. You know, make an exciting match. I had I understood rank psychology and could work with just about anybody. Yeah, I I didn't I didn't worry about you know losing my job there. It, it just was difficult to talk to Shire because he was so unpleasant. You know that that what you just said that he what you just told me that he said about me actually makes me feel a little better because I can say I can say that he said something nice going into this interview tonight. I, I was not able to say that there was one thing that Roy Shire ever did that I thought was positive. He was the most disagreeable, nasty. He was always truculent and aggressive and like he was angry. And like, I mean, that's before, you know, you haven't Just even started hated talking the world, to I'm assuming. Like he, right. like he hated the world, like he caught you with his 10-year-old daughter or something. You oh, know, he, did, just yeah. act, he just acted like such a jerk that, um, yeah, it was, I, don't, I don't like to tolerate that kind of stuff. Don't get me wrong. I'm not better no, than it, anybody, it, but if I have a choice in life, I won't hang around with that kind of person because, no, you know, it, they're just... I didn't expect going into this, not just Roy Shire, but the entire, you telling all, you know, the weekly stories here. I didn't expect everything to be sunshine and rainbows. I know, you know, this is professional wrestling, and that was a, a very seedy time uh, in professional wrestling specifically. And not just wrestlers were, you know, questionable, but certainly a lot of the promoters as well. So, I expected stories to come out like this, and I expected certain people, you know, maybe we have a new look at, at that type of, you know, at that person, and, you know, that might not make everybody out there happy, but facts are facts, and you guys can, you know, make your own decisions, but this was Bob's experience with Roy Shire, and he's allowed to feel the way he wants to feel because he was treated a certain way or he witnessed certain things. I just wanted to get that out of the way because I see so many people get upset whenever, you know, somebody lambastes their their favorites. And I'm not saying Roy Shire had a lot of favorites, but maybe there were fans that grew up diehard San Francisco fans and they only looked at Roy Shire as their hero in some way, shape, or form because they never knew the man. Well, let me address that. The only reason I've been, uh, I, I do want to qualify what I've been saying because I, I got on here, Roy Shire is long gone. You know, he's passed away. And I made a, you know, I told you in the beginning, I didn't want to ever get on here and uh, you know, badmouth someone who wasn't around to defend themselves. However, uh, Roy is an exception in a way, and I'll tell you why. After he had basically hot shot and killed San Francisco, uh, there was some potential. I think it was Ganya and uh, McMahon Sr. maybe teaming up together. I, I don't remember the particulars. There was going to be some competition coming in. So Roy went to the newspaper, and he didn't go to the San Francisco Chronicle, which was a you know a nationally known paper. He went to the Los Angeles Times, which was an internationally known paper, and over a four-page column to column, top to bottom, side to side spread, exposed pro wrestling. I've I've heard I've heard that story. 
Yeah, for all you out there who give me, <laughs> who are giving me, I was going to say about, for people giving Bob, B. yes, for everybody <laughs> giving Bob crap about Plan B and everybody else involved. By the way, there were more. It was more than just Bob in that video. Uh, that that video was never released. Uh, this is a great story. Go on and tell him, Bob. Well, yeah, all you all you folks giving me as a wrestler. Uh, making comments about my own occupation and one that I'm the one traveling up and down the road doing. You you want to overlook someone like Roy Shire, who after making, I don't know how, $50 million, I don't know how much, but right. a fortune. And Vince McMahon Jr., who also is a billionaire now, both exposed to business on national television or in national, in LA Times. I read the LA Times in Europe when I was when I was working there. Uh, these guys expose it to the world and nobody's going to know, but they're the promoters. So I guess they're, they're, it's okay for them to do that. Well, well I, I think a what? lot of people may not know that, that Shire did that because it happened in a completely different time in a different era. But it, I, for, you know, and I knew that, that I didn't, I, I shame on me. I didn't put it in my notes, but I thought of it like twice when I was taking these notes and I forgot to add it in there, but I do remember Shire doing that at, you know, at the end, like when he knew his time was up as a promoter, he exposed the entire business. And what did you say? It was like several pages long? It was four pages. Uh, I'm not sure what. My sister sent me the, the paper because she lives out there in a suburb or, I don't know, it's 50 miles away from downtown L.A., but Thousand Oaks. And she saw it in the paper. He, he mentioned my name in the paper. So she saw that, and um, she sent it to me. Now, the thing is, when Roy exposes a business, he damages a profession that not just he depends on, but hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people, right. uh, not just the rustlers, but all the support people, all the people involved with the whole process all over the state, not just the state, all over the world, who are getting this information uh, that's, you know, certainly not conducive to helping pro wrestling. Um, you know, so I, I always looked at Roy. There's an animal that is as nasty as can be called a wolverine. I would compare Roy, except the Wolverine really is tough, and Roy wasn't tough. He was—he looked, he tried to act tough, but the Wolverine, it'll, it'll, if it found a moose that had somehow had been killed, or maybe a bear killed it and left half the meat there, the Wolverine would eat its fill, and then instead of uh, just leaving it or you know trying to bury it or whatever, he would uh, put his body musk on it, They'd pee on it, I guess. I don't know sure how they do that, but he would ruin it for everybody else. You know, if he can't have it, if he can't eat the rest of it, nobody else can either. Well, that's Roy Shires. That's Roy Shires. If I can't, if I can't have it, then nobody can have it. You know, I'll ruin it. You demoted me from captain of the ship. I'm, I'm heading for the iceberg. You know, uh, if I can't run the ship, nobody's going to run it. And the other thing was, until you told me this, I could not find one good thing to say about Roy Shire. Now, you could say, okay, well, he gave people out, out in uh, California a great wrestling for years and years. They really got it. And that's true, except for the fact that he wasn't doing it for that purpose. It wasn't an aesthetic purpose of trying to make – it was, to, it was to, to make money. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it was also – he was breaking the law. He was a criminal in doing it. And to me, that negates any kind of positive actions, you know, that you have. It's like uh, – uh, you burned Joan of Arc at the stake, but you charged admission, and you made a lot of money from the admission, and you gave it to the old ladies of the poor. So you're justified burning Joan of Arc at the stake. It turned out to be a good thing. No, it didn't. <laughs> Certainly not for Joan. 
Yeah, I had nothing at all good to say about Roy, and I, I'm analyzing why he might have said something good about me, and it might have only been because maybe he had some respect for me, and I'm not trying to blow my own horn here, but um, I am one guy that he, even when he called me in his office to tell me that he knew about the takeover thing and to let me go, he never cussed me. He never got mad at me. He just fired me. You know, he said, well, you know, you're, gonna, you're finished up, you're finished. Believe me, he was as pleasant as he could be, which is like, say, Groundhog stage, not all the way to Wolverine. But uh, maybe he had some little bit of respect for me because I wouldn't take his crap. And then the other thing I did, I made him a lot of money. I mean, I didn't do it alone, but we made him a lot of money over the year that, that we had to run. We were running things. So, mm-hmm. OK, I don't know how far I got off track there. No, but we've been, we're totally on track. Um I, I'm reading here just a couple of excerpts from the book again. It says, under Roop's booking, Roy's territory experienced an increase in fan interest, attendance, and gate revenue. It's no exaggeration to say that the territory was experiencing a positive turnaround. But not all were happy with the changes that were being made. You talked about Al Madrill. Uh, citing Pepper Gomez as one of the wrestlers who didn't care for the new style. Do you recall ever having issues with Pepper, complaints, cold shoulder, or otherwise? Uh, Pepper was always cold to me, and I don't blame him. You know, I'm this young guy that comes in, and, you know, uh, I looked up, uh, thinking of him. I, the other day, you were talking about doing some uh, background checking. I looked, I wanted to see how old Pepper was when he, when I had him, and he was 50 years old. You know, his body was still great, although you could see signs of age, uh, like of an aging body. He was a great bodybuilder, apparently. He had a great body. You know, he looked good, but his face he looked his age, you know, he looked, he didn't have gray hair. Of course, you could dye your hair and all that. But his face, he looked his age, and also he had gotten creaky. You know, he wasn't smooth, and and bodybuilders usually aren't fluid in action anyway. You know, right. they're they're a little bit, I don't want to say muscle-bound, but uh, their muscles are a little tighter than most people mm-hmm. uh, who don't don't train that hard. And I'm all, don't get me wrong, I'll, I'll work credit in the world to them in bodybuilding. But you're in pro wrestling now. If you your your great big body means you can't, you know, you can't get in a ring uh, because you're too stiff. Well, uh, we don't need you. So anyway, yeah, I had I had problems. Uh, a lot of it goes on feel. I never felt like Pepper had any use for me. I mean, it's I don't know if it's picking up on body language or it's, again, it's just a, in wrestling as a heel. If you don't feel the audience, if you don't feel the kind of vibes and the, the the emotional transmissions that are taking place in their brains and the, their emotional centers out there. If you're not picking up on that with your radar, your vibe catcher, whatever you want to call it, if you're not picking up on that, you're in serious trouble because you'll go way too far. You 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 might even get out of there okay, like Dale Lewis did down in Puerto Rico. <laughs> right. so other, other people get hurt. Yeah, the other and, people pay for it. And you know who? In the audience, older people, Children, smaller people, women, they're the ones that when people are running around, guys are mad and screaming and throwing chairs, they're the ones that get hurt. And you guess what happens? They don't come back to the matches, at least not right away. Uh, so you really hurt your talents when you do that stuff. And as a booker, you had to you had to be aware of all that. I don't want riots. Guys said, oh, yeah, we had a riot every night. Well, I'm glad you weren't working for me because I would have fired you. Uh, my, I t- t- do not try to have a riot. Uh, what you've been told to do is based on evaluation of your ability to go out there and have them ready to riot, 
but not yet out of their seats. Right. You know, or they can even be standing up, but they're going to stay where they are. You're going to get out of there without. We don't want a riot here because not only that, you have a riot and people get hurt. They also sue the buildings that they that these riots happen in. They get sued. Do you think they want you back? They get sued for, you know, especially if it happens more than once. Right. You think they want you back in their building? <laughs> they, you know, they don't. If it like a $50 million lawsuit, two or three people got crippled. So, yeah, all those things have to be taken in consideration when you're booking. As a wrestler, you know, well, I want to have a riot because I want everybody to think I'm a, you know, real hot, a real good talent. I got a lot of heat. But, you know, you can, anybody can go out there, you know, you pull a, little girl in the ring and shave her head or something. You know, uh, I made the uh, analogy of the ring guy getting in there and hitting uh, a baby face with a pen and then putting a boost to him. Uh, that guy would have people coming in the sure. ring to get him. Sure, absolutely. He, that would have been a hell of a draw. I wish I, could, I wish I could go back in time and do that angle back in the day. I'd, I'd be making some money right now. <laughs> it, would, it would have been It would be good, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah. yeah that was it would have been good. That would have been an excellent story. Um, you know, I just got one more question about Pepper, and then we'll move on, because he had been in and out of San Francisco forever. He was an established star there, former main eventer, drew a lot of money himself. So I, I noticed he's still on the roster, even though you're booking, and he's kind of, you know, not really acknowledging you to whatever degree. So I'm just curious, uh, did Roy Shire have say in who was hired and fired, or was that all you? Because uh, if you're not getting along with a, a talent, are you keeping Pepper at this point? Because you know, even if it's just for tag team purposes – that he's an established star there and, and you could work, you know, with, with his attitude. Yeah. He was one of Roy's, uh, demands. Uh, and you know, I could deal with it. You know, Pepper drew, he drew, he drew, certainly drew with Hispanics. Mm -hmm. And after Maduro was gone, Pepper was the only, uh, Hispanic I had. So again, I, please people out there who are Pepper Gomez fans and his family and relatives, this is not in any way, shape or form meant to be derogatory. He was a great talent. He had a great career. But people, when you do it too long, um, you get a lot of diminishing returns. Pepper came to Florida, and they tried to put him over because there's a lot of, you know, the Cubans and all the Hispanics from the Caribbean area that have migrated to Miami and the, the, the South Coast there in, in Florida. Uh, there's an audience out there, especially in Miami and Fort Lauderdale and for a uh, Hispanic wrestler. And they tried real hard. I mean, they, they put the, I think they put the uh, Southern heavyweight title on him uh, within a week or two to try to get him over, and it just didn't work. Pepper was, again, he looked great, but he was older, he was slower. He wasn't convincing anymore. And uh, he was mad at me in California because he wanted to do uh, this gimmick where he gets does something, he gets up on a ladder and jumps off. Yeah, I know and, uh, the, the uh, iron cast stomach. Yeah, that was that's right. Somebody jumps off the ladder on him. That's what it was. Yes. Well, he wanted he wanted to do it, but he'd already done it, and it's on tape. I saw it on tape, and he wanted to do it in San Francisco, and I said, "But Pepper, you already did it," and uh, he said, "Yeah, but we didn't do it here." I said, "Well, I want to ask you this: if you do that again, and you let say Smirnoff or whoever get up there and jump off on you, and the last time." Some uh, heel did it. He jumped on your head instead of your stomach. And he'd do it again. Wouldn't you think that, you know, that maybe you look like a fool? But I'm assuming to pacify Pepper, you go and do it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I kept him on the card and, and uh, 
you know, he made money. He made a living. You know, he was he's getting paid okay. I mean, I was up to Shire. He would pay guys he wanted to and wouldn't pay guys he didn't want to. Yeah, it was that was, you know, that came with the job. I didn't have a problem with it. I mean, uh, most of the time, bookers that want the talent to love them are making a big mistake because when you're one of the boys, you're friends with the other guys, but you're, you're, you're employees. When you become a booker, you're middle management. You're not an employee as you can with the workers. Then. You're a middle management. You're a white shirt and guy and collar guy who is uh, working for the boss to give you your orders. And you're going to have to tell your friends, your former friends, things they don't want to hear about maybe you're going to have to do a job or even worse, uh, I got to let you go. Not for anything you did, but you've been here too long. And, you know, the, when we try to feature in matches, you're great. Your matches are great. Everything's great. But the response from the fans is not there. So that, all that means is just you've been here too long. Let's have you go out for a year, six months, a year, and come back. And then you'll be fresh and you can have another run. But, you know, guys got bad. Or a lot of guys were foolish enough to buy homes in a place when they got there and were got over and started making some money, not realizing they weren't going to stay there forever. You can't. Right. Sure. Now, in California, you could. But it was Pat Patterson and Ray Stevens that could stay there forever. Oh, yeah. Because of the exceptionality, they both were geniuses in the ring. And uh, you, not, everybody else, not everybody else that gets in the ring has that level of ability charisma and looks and you know just the whole nine yards uh ray stevens was uh was just uh, one of the best and a really good guy too yeah bump machine by all accounts there's not a lot of his uh prime years out there on video unfortunately but bobby heenan uh grew up watching ray stevens and he, he referred to him as you know the greatest of you know of all time to, to bobby uh based on you know just the, the total package in the ring was Ray Stevens, and from from all, everything I understood, like the uh, original Crazy Bumper was was the Crippler, <laughs> who uh, yeah. surprisingly didn't cripple himself. But yeah. uh, <laughs> well, he he did in the end. But uh, yeah, he was. But he was a you know he was a really good guy. He didn't have a he didn't have a overblown ego. And I think I mentioned it already. But just having him say good match after he worked as a lumberjack in one of my matches, mm. where he was sitting right you know standing right at ringside to watch me work against Steve Curran and say good match after. I mean, that was like, you know, like having the president, you know, give you the free American Freedom Award. Oh, that's um, <laughs> coming from, well, coming from a guy who's acknowledged as one of the masters of your yes, business. Right. Who says, who says good match. That's meaningful. Some guy, the ring guy that says it, nothing against ring guys. They're, not, they're very important. Ring guys out there, thank you, thank you, thank you for showing up with the ring. Them saying the same thing is not quite as like Ray Stevens saying it because they don't have the background, you know. Uh, all they've done is watch matches. Ray Stevens has had matches, thousands of them. You know, he started I think when he was fifteen, and when I was talking to him, he was probably he was probably thirty five or older. So right. he'd been working a long time. And so again, yeah, he was one that Sharers had to help him make all that money out there. Uh, he and Pat, uh, I don't, I never looked back in history of what kind of matches they had, you know, what their angles were, how often they were against each other, or with each other, how it actually worked. But I know just having two talents like that, one a heel, one a baby face, and interchangeable, you know, they can switch back and forth right. over a period of time. It's gold for sure. Yeah, they were a tag that. team. They drew on top as a tag team. They feuded with each other on top. 
I mean, it was just like constant money, you know, during that time period. Yeah. I could only imagine how much money was in Shire's briefcase on those nights. Oh yeah, oh, boy. When they, <laughs> if they, I imagine if they ever did a two hundred thousand dollar house at the at the palace, I bet Shire took over fifty grand out of there in cash at oh. least. Yeah. So we have set the stage. We know how you got there. We know how you became Booker. We heard the story of Pat Patterson and Roy Shire and the bikers. We've heard a, a lot of things here today. We talked about. Shire, the human being, and some of the shady business behaviors he had, uh, and some of the other things he was uh, doing, you know, behind the scenes as well, asking Pat Patterson to perjure himself, all sorts of things like that. So we're going to wrap it up here in just a little bit, Bob. I got two questions left for you so we can kind of package this first episode in a bow, because when we return next time, we'll actually break down in detail some of the the storylines, the feuds that you did, and, and all of the, the wrestlers and things over the course of your time as Booker there. but. Before we leave today, two more questions in regards to Roy Shire. Okay. All right. So question number one, I'm assuming based on the way you've described the man, uh, you're making him all this money. You've turned things around and we're going to get into that in the next episode too. We're going to talk about what they were drawing before Bob Roop, the booker, and after you became the booker, which wow, night and day. And I'm not even exaggerating guys. Um, you guys can actually go maybe look up some of the houses in certain cities right now online. Uh, but uh, I'm assuming based on everything you've told me up to this point, at no point when you're making him all this extra money and he's taking it home and he's, he's you know, Scrooge McDuck diving into it, I'm picturing him right now. But, uh, is is he ever coming up to you and saying, Bob, you're doing a great job as Booker now. Thank you, you know, thank you for turning things around. <laughs> no. <laughs> he, had, he, had, he wanted to take credit for it. Uh, he went to uh, one day at TV. They just had the uh, the promoters get together back and now. The, the, they'd go out and meet in Vegas, and they might talk about, they're out there three or four days or at least, I think, and they they might talk about business for a half hour a day. The rest of the time was just partying, you know, swapping stories. Sure. And, you know, who stole the most money. It had to be a hell money. of a time, a sight to see, to be involved in yeah. one of those. Well, Shires came back, and oh, he got me with this one. He came back from the, that year's meeting. And called me into a, a, an office at TV. He said, "Hey, I was just out at the uh, Vegas at the promoters convention." He said, "I talked to Eddie Graham, and Eddie Graham said that you weren't a consistent booker." He said, "All you did was carry coffee around. Uh, that's all you did." Oh, I got hot, oh, and I knew what Graham <laughs> was doing. He was messing with Shire, but it still it still irritated me because now I had to deal with this jerk. Right. So what Roy wanted was that he wanted input he wanted to be able to see when i was running things he couldn't strut around around the boys acting like he was the big cheese because i was telling the guys what to do and roy didn't have anything to do with it he didn't want to sit by and just be like there although most promoters i think would have been happy with that so uh he wanted to be back on the stage himself and be the big cheese so you know <laughs> first of all Think about his argument. The houses are up everywhere. The Cal Palace was increased by at least 50%, maybe 75 And he's telling me that I don't have any experience as a booker. I said, so I said, well, you know, I guess if I'd had more experience, I said, you know, maybe we would have done even better. But, you know, for a guy with no experience, I seem to be doing pretty, okay. Pretty damn good for a guy yeah. for a guy's never done this oh, thing before. <laughs> oh, when I was hot. I said, I tell you what, you're right. Uh, now, I didn't care ever carry any coffee for anybody, but 
I tell you what, uh, the show's due to start, I think, in about, let me look, oh, 12 minutes. Uh, all right, it's all yours. What? I said, it's all yours. Well, do you know what to do? I said, <laughs> uh, no. Um, I was getting ready to tell him when you called me in here. I said, you want to run it? If you want to run it, then you run it. But I'm not going to run it with you. I'm not going to take your orders. If you want to run it, you run it. I'll leave, no problem. You know, uh, I'm not going to stay here and be your talent after being a booker. I'll go somewhere else. But uh, if you want to run it, you run it. Otherwise, leave me alone. And, oh, boy, I was hot, though. I was hot at Graham to even <laughs> say that, to give Roy that kind of, give Shire that kind of ammunition. Right. Because Shire wouldn't make that up. I knew that. So uh, next time I saw Graham, I was, oh, I was cold. As a, oh, I was so cold to him. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, Roy kept trying. But, you know. What money money talks and everything else walks and and we we had to every it wasn't just San Francisco every town was up so he had no what's what's your beef what's your beef Roy uh, I'm booking it and business has increased it's double well, what is the problem it's still going up it's not like we went over a cliff and dropped back to you know where it was when I started we're continuing to get better. I can't get into the mind of Roy, but I, I just, it feels like maybe there's just resentment there that you're doing this and not him after years of him, yeah. you know, being, being the, the big shot. I, I'm not trying to put you over here on the show. Like, Oh, Bob, you're, you're the greatest of all time or anything like that. But I'm just saying, it just sounds like Roy, you know, things were down. I mean, arguably I wait till I get to the numbers on the next episode, Bob, and the numbers, what they look like two less than two months after you take over the book in places like the cow palace. It's you said maybe about a 75%, you know, it went up about 75%. You weren't lying, uh, but we'll get to that in the next episode. Now you did also cover the second question I had, which was about that convention and the conversation that Eddie Graham had with them. Yeah. Now keep in mind, Bray and you listeners out there, uh, this was all new to me. I'd been a booker and for assistant booker. I, I said in an earlier show, I booked Fort Lauderdale and West Palm beach. Uh, when I was assistant booker with, Harley, I think that was before. Yeah. You know, I had some experience at it, but all this stuff with Shire was brand new to me. Being attacked like that or being, you know, being, having him try to manipulate me. And uh, Ray, to your point, Roy wanted to walk around and be able to take credit for everything that was happening. When he was there, a couple times I caught him chewing out guys my, that I had told, given the match, I, the, guy, the matches I made. And I'd always step in right away and said, Roy, you got a problem with these guys? Talk to me. I told them what to do. So you got a problem? Tell, talk, talk to me. Don't be jumping on them. And the boys appreciated the hell out of that. And the other promoters, we'll get into that, but there's other promoters that, that were ready to get rid of Shire. But um, yeah, that was new stuff to me. And I was having to deal with it as it came up. Uh, it was always a little bit of a shock, like, what? This guy's uh, is acting like you know I'm not a, not worthwhile as a booker, you know. We I just we just came from you know the cow palace the other night and the excitement and the big house. So uh, yeah, it was new stuff, but you know I got used to it and uh, it, it ended up uh, hurting him more than it did me. Oh, very interesting stuff. So I guess in the end, maybe you weren't really happy with Roy not giving you credit, like Pat Patterson. Is that fair to say? No, uh, not not at all. I didn't care. Okay, I didn't care. I wasn't looking for credit. Okay, uh, I was having I was having fun. I mean, we were having good shows. 
We usually had a day off a week. I got along. Kevin and Kevin Sullivan and I were coming up with. He was coming up with a lot of stuff for our angle. Dean Ho, guys, uh, Les Thornton, uh, Carl von Steiger, guys who were my friends. That I was getting along with. You know, having them on in the dressing room. It was great. It was fun. Roy wasn't there most of the time. He only came to a few shows. He came to the Cow Palace, of course. And Fresno, <laughs> take the money. <laughs> yeah, he had to. He definitely could pick up the money there. The shows he went to, you know, he was picking up money there. So, uh, <laughs> but he wouldn't be at the other end of that. when he wasn't there. We had a great time. Oh, you know, guys were making money. We're here in Cal- sunny California. My God, one Sunday I was on the beach early in the morning, drove up to Lake Tahoe and went skiing that afternoon. Wow. I mean, who can wow. do that? Yeah, you know, yeah. snow snow skiing. Yeah, who sure. can do that? So yeah. you know, to have that kind of a life. Uh, you know, it's just like I was able to put Shire on the back burner, you know, and not let him bother me. I I don't want to come across as being disrespectful, but respect is or should be earned. And Roy did not act, or Shire did not act in a way that was respectful. I mean, I couldn't respect him being so derogatory to people, always being nasty and on the defensive and, and acting like, you know, you've done something wrong and putting everybody on the defensive. Guys are not going to go out there and work when they're, you know, there's enough pressure to go out there and have a good match, even when you're experienced. Uh, but, you know, not, you don't want to go out there and work where you feel like a guy's watching you with a, uh, you got to go out there and perform uh, under ridiculous uh, expectations. Yeah, I had, to, I had to keep him as far away from things as I could. And that's when we get to, when we get to Pat McGinnis, uh, Pat, <laughs> Pat was a big help in doing that. <laughs> so... <laughs> yeah, I can't. I can't wait. To, uh, looking forward to that for sure. Um, so you you kind of touched on it just briefly there. Some of the other promoters that were involved in some of these other cities here in the San Francisco territory weren't necessarily happy uh, that with their dealings as of late with Roy Shire, and that's going to bring a proposal, a proposal which we are going to touch on in great detail later on in this story, guys. Probably. Episode three, the third and final episode. Next time we return, Bob, we're going to talk all about the storylines, the wrestling, the angles, the stars involved. We're going to touch on the actual wrestling. Guys, next time around, we're going to look at some of the booking, Dean Ho and Alexis Smirnoff, and of course, that six-month feud that set the territory on fire, talking about Bob Root versus Kevin Sullivan, all of that, so much more, lots of other names. We're going to look at guys like Chavo Guerrero, Chavo Classic. And uh, Haystacks Calhoun comes in near the end of your run here. So I can't wait to get, you know, maybe a Haystacks story and maybe next time too. But that's next episode and the third and final installment. We're going to close things out. We're going to talk about what fell apart, how things went sideways between you and Roy Shire, the territory, how you came to leave the San Francisco area, and uh, so much more. So stay tuned, guys. It's a fun three-part series. And I'm so happy that we got part one in the books. I, I got I got the format or, ex- or at least information in front of me, Bob, but your stories, your in-depth memories of this time made this come to life for me. And I'm sure everyone else at home. Well, thank you, Ray. I think we make a good team. You know, you 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 set me up for it perfectly, uh, you know, where I can just come in and tell what happened. And that, you know, it's really it's enjoyable. I'm having a good time. All right, guys, that's going to wrap it up here this week. You guys remember to follow Bob Roop on Facebook at facebook.com slash poor Bob Roop. And don't forget, you guys can check me out also on facebook.com slash wrestling grenade and head over to X, formerly Twitter, at wrestling grenade. That's at R A S S L I N grenade. 
And Bob, I have to thank you so much for, for doing this again. It's been a real experience. I thought I would probably learn some things in between everything that I had already read. But man, you talk about a, a whole new level uh, of looking into the man, Roy Shire and beyond. I hope people uh, listen to this. And if you're hearing this right now, go tell your friends, anybody who loves the history of the business and wants to learn more. Because this wasn't just, hey, this is how I got in here. This is how he became the booker. Roy Shire was a, an asshole or, or whatever. Bob breaks it down. Everything that went on uh, behind the scenes. And I, I was happy to be here along for the ride. Thank you so much, Bob. Looking forward to telling the second part of this story next week. Okay, Ray. Yeah, we're, we're riding a stagecoach together, my friend. Thank you. Thank you.